Exodus chapter 31, from the beginning. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Asimarach, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant law with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent, the table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests, and the anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath, because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days, work is to be done, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever, for in six days, The Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. I think we're about three quarters of the way through the book of Exodus now. We're starting to see how God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham. Uh, His promises uh, to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation and to be their God and to bless them. Uh, Abraham's family, or Jacob's family as it was then, went into Egypt, um, a small number, uh, and they're now a vast multitude. God has blessed them, uh, he's rescued them, and he's now in the process of declaring his covenant with them and establishing them as a nation. That's where we are in the middle of Exodus. Uh, Moses went up the mountain in chapter 24, if you've been following the series, uh, and God's given him a number of instructions about items for the tabernacle, the ark, the lampstand, the altar for burnt offerings, the priestly garments, and all sorts of different bits. And tonight, in chapter 31... God tells Moses uh, how uh, all of these things are to be made and who is to make them. Just as we begin, 
Uh, I want to take a moment to talk about verse 1, because I think it would be very easy to skip over it, wouldn't it? Exodus chapter 31, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is the sixth time since Moses went up the mountain that we've had this exact same phrase. Then the Lord said to Moses, there's a, 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 a recurring emphasis that this is God who is speaking to Moses on the mountaintop. Now, if you just um, pause for a moment and think about all the different voices that you've listened to this week. What have you listened to this week? When I uh, get into my car for a journey, if I'm going to work, I often start with Radio 5 for news and sport and banter and that sprinkling of traffic reports with techno beats in the background. Um, But what have you listened to? Uh, Do you listen to podcasts? Uh, What do you watch on TV? What kind of music are you listening to? What have you looked at on the internet or on social media? What about the people that you've spoken to, your friends and your colleagues and your family and your neighbours? How much time have you spent with all of these different voices ringing in your ears? As God's people... We need to be really aware of the voices that we're listening to, don't we? The worldviews that they project onto us and to us and the influence that they have on us. Some of those influences may well have been positive and godly, but um, I suspect not all of them were. But none of them come close, do they, to listening to the voice of God himself. All of those different voices that jostle for your attention all week, none of them come close to the voice of God himself, do they? And that's what Exodus 31 verse 1 reminds us we're doing when we open our Bibles here this evening. The Lord said to Moses, this is God speaking. We're listening to the voice of God, the voice that created the universe the voice that speaks judgment on sin, the voice that speaks wisdom and truth and love and kindness and offers us forgiveness and life. This is a voice that's really worth listening to, isn't it? And this is the voice that we're listening to this evening. How exciting that is, isn't it? Just as we start, we're listening to the voice of God himself. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 31 in uh, two sections. Um, First one, God's spirit and God's gifts. And then secondly, we're going to think about God's way. So God's spirit and God's gifts and then God's way. If it helps you to understand where I'm going with this, for each of these two sections, we're going to walk through the relevant verses and then um, think about three different applications in each section. Um, I have, I'm sorry, I re- I'm really sorry, I haven't got a slide. I find it really helpful when somebody puts an outline on the slide, but I ran out of time. So I'm going I'm to give you the outline, two sections, three applications each. And this is the first section, God's spirit and God's gifts. Let's look down um, at verse 2. God says to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri. The passage begins with God personally choosing 
this man called Bezalel for this task. And God's choice here is intentional, isn't it? Uh, He's not just picking a, a random man out of the crowd. This is intentional. It's part of God's good and perfect plan that Bezalel should be the man who's in charge of making all the things that need to be made for the tabernacle. And this choice means that God knows Bezalel, who he is, his family, which is nicely listed for us, and his history, his gifts, his faith, his character. God knows his abilities and his strengths, and he knows that Bezalel is the right man for the job. He calls him by name from among the multitude of Israel. And he goes on and he says, Bezalel, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Now, this is, this is the first time in the Bible, as far as I understand, that any individual is said to be filled with the Spirit. Now, I'm not, that's not, of course, to deny the work of the Spirit in any other of the lives of the Old Testament believers before this, but it is to point out that this is a, this is a special moment. There's something special going on here when Bezalel is said to be filled with the Spirit. The power of the Spirit in the Old Testament is usually associated uh, with the prophets, with the judges perhaps, or with the kings, and Bezalel is none of those things. So there's something out of the ordinary going on here. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God himself, comes to endow Bezalel with a special power to do the task God has assigned him to do. And verse 3 carries on to fill him with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. God is giving Bezalel understanding in his mind, intelligence and knowledge, but also um, in his hands, giving him practical skills and abilities. If you look at verse 4, Bezalel has skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. And as well as it just being gifts with his hands, practical skills, God gives um, Bezalel artistic skills. This is not just engineering of these items, is it? what kind of tools to use and what kind of metals and techniques and some some nice square drawings. But the artistry, the style. If engineers make things that work, artists make things that are beautiful, don't they? Well, they should do. (laughs) And Bezalel here is gifted for both. The implication of that, I think, is that Bezalel is expected to use his artistic gifts for this task God has given um, lots of clear instructions in the previous five chapters about how he wants things to be made, um, but they're not exhaustive. There's lots of details that aren't covered, and there's plenty of room for artistic interpretation. Um, If you flick back, um, just to give an example of this, if you were to flick back to chapter 26, Exodus chapter 26 and verse 1, God tells Moses, make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted 
linen and blue, purple and scarlet yarn, with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. There's, there's detail there, isn't there, that Bezalel needs to follow. Uh, it should be twisted linen, and it should have blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. That's detail for Bezalel to follow. But there's also some interpretation required, isn't there? It says, with cherubim woven into them. Well, what, what do cherubim look like? How, how big should those cherubim be? And what, what pose should they be striking? Uh, what, what color should the cherubim be? Bezalel's artistic gifts are going to be needed, aren't they, for all sorts of details in the construction of the tabernacle and its furniture. Let's keep going. If we go to verse 6, we can see that God is not commissioning Bezalel to do this on his own, but he gives him a right-hand man, Ahaliab, son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, along with a group, it says, of skilled workers. Bezalel's gifts and abilities are certainly supernatural in their origin, aren't they? We've seen that because they come from the spirit of God himself. Um, But perhaps they wouldn't have been supernatural in their appearance. Um, He needs a group of skilled men to work with him. He needs his team in much the same way that we often work with a team. And then in verses 7 to 11, there's a summary of the task that God is assigning to this gift this group of gifted men to make the items that have been described, the tabernacle and its furniture. So this is God's spirit and God's gifts to Bezalel and Ahaliab. But what does it all mean for us? What, what are we going to learn from this passage? So here's, here's three applications. Eli told me if I didn't have a PowerPoint, I'd be very clear about when I was making my point. So... This is application number one. Here we go. Um, Firstly, it shows us that God provides the right people with the right gifts. God provides the right people with the right gifts. It's really heartwarming. Uh, If you flick through the story of Exodus so far to see all the ways in which God has already provided for his people. Um, God, of course, um, has provided them with a great deliverance from Egypt, hasn't he? Um, with Moses and the plagues and the Passover and this deliverance of the people out of Egypt. God has provided them with deliverance from the angel of death when he comes over through the Passover lamb. God has provided them with the materials that they need by making the Egyptians favorably disposed towards them so that they plundered the Egyptians as they left. Do you remember that? They go, it's amazing, isn't it? They go from being slaves in Egypt to plundering them because God makes the Egyptians favorably disposed. God's provided Israel with food in chapter 16, with manna in, in the desert, and with water in the desert in chapter 17. God has provided them with victory in battle over the Amalekites. Everywhere you go in Exodus, God provides for this, this group of people. He provides for them at every step. And now here in chapter 31, God provides them with the specific gifts and abilities that they need to make the items he wants them to make, to do the task he's given them to do. God provides the right people. Some of the commentaries comment 
Or, well, they asked the question about where the Israelites would have learned these skills. Moses, when he leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, is, is already 80 years old. And, of course, the, the Israelites were, were severely oppressed when Moses was a baby, wasn't he? Because that was when Pharaoh gave the order to kill all the, the, the Israelite baby boys. So they've been a people under the thumb in Egypt for 80 years. Where, where do you learn to do fine work with gold and silver while you're making bricks as an Egyptian slave? Where do those skills come from? But it is God who provides the right people with the right gifts at the right time. It's a theme throughout the Bible that God provides. Paul tells the Philippian church... Uh, in chapter four, nine, uh, verse 19, I know we're studying Philippians at the moment, so I don't want to steal too much thunder, but he says, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. God who provides, isn't it? And we too need to trust God to provide in all sorts of ways, but thinking about what we're looking at this evening, particularly with people who have the right skills and abilities uh, in the church. Sarah was telling me this week that we need uh, another teacher for beginner's Sunday school. Last um, Sunday morning, I know uh, Simon was looking for more people to help with HBC this Easter. When uh, James and Amy go to America in the summer, we're going to need another leader at ETC uh, on a Tuesday night. I'm sure there's all sorts of other needs as well. The point is we could be anxious about these things, couldn't we? We could say, well, where, where are we going to find these people? But we can look to the God of the Bible and say, God provides the right people with the right skills at the right time. That's what we see here with Bezalel and Ohaliab. God provides the right people with the right gifts. Application number two. It shows us that God gives artistic abilities for his glory. God gives artistic abilities for his glory. I wanted to just think about artistic abilities specifically for a second because I think we have a slightly complex relationship with the arts in our society. In some ways, James is grinning at me. He's wondering where I'm going with this. In some ways, I think we have a fairly low view of the arts. Um, I went to the University of Bath, which is, is primarily a STEM university. It's science, technology, engineering, and maths. And um, I remember seeing a, a league table published in some educational supplement somewhere saying that University of Bath students were very employable. And after six months, some very high percentage of them would be employed. And that's, that's great, isn't it? I was really pleased. <laughs> um, but there's two universities in Bath. There's Bath Spa University as well, and Bath Spa University is primarily an arts university. Um, and they were right at the bottom of this table. Seems if you have an, if you have an arts degree, it's, it's much harder to find employment. Would be what that suggests, wouldn't it? And, and that perhaps then as a society, we don't really value arts in quite the same way. On the other hand, in 2017, Leonardo da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi painting, it's a painting on a little square of canvas, sold for 
450 million US dollars. I did some sums. Based on 2023 average prices, that would buy you about 1,150 average homes in Leamington Spa. All for the price of one painting. That's absurd, isn't it? How can a painting be worth over a thousand family homes? Can't be, can't be really, can it? So on the one hand, we seem to devalue the arts, and on the other hand, in some corners, we seem to massively overvalue it. But cutting through all of the voices of the world around us, what Exodus 31 shows us is that God gives artistic abilities to people like Bezalel, and they are to be used for his service and for his glory. If you have artistic gifts like Bezalel, they are given to you by God. They are blessed by God, and they are to be used for God's glory, just like Bezalel's were. Artistic gifts... Um, They're part of the great diversity of life and gifting that God has given to people made in his image. I think it was Bill James, I recall a sermon um, from when I was very young, um, saying that if God didn't want things to be beautiful, then butterflies would just be protein pellets with wings. But God has made them beautiful, hasn't he? God God is an artist, And God gives and blesses artistic gifts to be used for his glory. That was number two. And then application three. It shows us that God's gifts are to be used for God's glory. Um, We've just talked about artistic gifts, and I think I'm really just broadening the point here, aren't I? Um, I wanted to talk specifically about um, the arts, uh, but actually there's a principle here for all of the gifts that God gives. Um, Bezalel and Ohaliab are given the Spirit of God and these gifts in order that they may serve God. They're given with a purpose. Gifts to serve God aren't just to do with preaching and teaching in the church. Um, artistic gifts and gifts of craftsmanship here come from God too. Gifts to cook and show hospitality. Gifts with numbers or animals or people, gifts to teach or to fix things. If you have knowledge and abilities, they are given to you by God because all good things come from God. All good gifts come from God and they are given to you to serve God because Christians are called to serve God in everything we do. Bezalel had his gifts so that he could serve God, but you have your gifts given to you by God, and you are called to use them to serve God too. God's Spirit gives God's gifts to do God's work. That's the first point. Uh, And then the second thing, God's way. God's way. Everything that Bezalel is to do is to be done in God's way. Um, God has spent... Uh, five or six chapters here, giving Moses some detailed instructions about how things should be built. And then in verse 11, he says explicitly, they are to be made 
uh, just as I commanded you. Or sorry, they are to make them just as I commanded you. There is no freedom to ignore or flex the details that God has explicitly given. God has determined what the tabernacle and all of these different items should look like, and Bezalel and Ahaliab are not to think that they know better than God. This is verse 11, by the way. They are to be made just as God commanded. They are to be made in God's way. And then we get to verse 12. And at a first glance, I think, um, the instructions about the Sabbath can appear to be a, a slightly random deviation from the set of instructions about the tabernacle and its furniture. But I think uh, there is a link between the first half of chapter 31 and the second half, and the link is the theme of work. The link is the theme of work. If verses 1 to 11 detail who and how and what for the work of building the tabernacle, verses 12 to 17 are part of the instruction on the way that the work on the tabernacle is to be done. God is saying to Bezalel and Ahaliab and all the others who'll be working, he's saying, look, although I've commanded you to do this work, and it's a really important job, building the tabernacle for God, you are not to forget that I have also commanded you not to work on the Sabbath. Don't think that just because you have this really important job that you're free to ignore everything else I've commanded you. No, God's work is to be done, and it is important, but it's to be done in God's way. And there are some details uh, here about the Sabbath that we shouldn't miss as well. So twice in verses 13 and 17, God tells Moses that the Sabbath is to be a sign between God and his people. What's it to be a sign of? Verse 13. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. So that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. So it's a sign given so that Israel can remember who God is and remember what his intentions for them are. He intends to make them holy. And I think this works in several ways. Um, firstly, it's an opportunity for devotion. It's an opportunity for devotion. When they put aside their work, they gave themselves time and space to remember the Lord. Time and space to know the Lord, who he is and all that he had done for them. They gave themselves a few hours to recall his intentions for them. In this sense, um, it's, not, it's not only a restrictive command, is it, i.e. don't work. It's devotional as well. It's given so that they may know the Lord who makes them holy. It's a positive thing. Uh, secondly, uh, it allows them to imitate God. When they put aside their work, they're being like the holy God in the sense that they're imitating him and following his creation pattern. It's not a coincidence, is it, that 
um, both here in verse 17 and in Exodus 20, when we're going through the Ten Commandments, um, that God mentions explicitly that it was in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Israel are to follow their Lord's pattern and be holy like them. Like him, sorry. Uh, so it's an opportunity to, for devotion. It's an opportunity to be like God and to imitate him. And thirdly, uh, it shows that they are different. It shows that they are different. When they put aside their work, they are distinguishing themselves from the nations around them uh, who didn't keep a Sabbath day. The world around them acts in one way, but Israel is the Lord's people, and they are different. They are set apart. They are holy. The Sabbath is a statement. It's a sign to themselves and anyone who sees that they are a people who belong to God and are given over to him. So the Sabbath is a sign given to Israel. But it's also something that God takes very seriously. And I don't think you can miss this, really. Look at verses 14 and 15, because it's, uh, it's repeated. Verse 14. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. Verse 15, for six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. It's a serious thing then, isn't it? It's not something that's to be taken lightly. Breaking the Sabbath, God says, is deserving of the death penalty. Clearly, identifying themselves then as God's people and giving themselves in devotion to him is something that's very important. Very important, so important that to disregard the Sabbath commandment means death. Well, there we go. Um, we've walked through it quickly. I promised three applications, so here they are. Application number one. God's work is to be done in God's way. God's work is to be done in God's way. Um, we, as God's holy people, um, saved through faith in Jesus, need to do things, do, need to do the right things, but we also need to do them in the right way. This passage on the Sabbath is a reminder to Bezalel that his calling to do this important task of constructing the tabernacle um, will not excuse breaking God's commandments in any other area. Um, and certainly not keeping the Sabbath. It's a reminder, therefore, to us that we too should carry out God's work in God's ways. Mark Twain is quoted as saying, it's never wrong to do the right thing. Um, and I think here God is saying the inverse of that, isn't he? It's never right to do the wrong thing. He's saying to Bezalel, you've got this important task, but it's never right to break my Sabbaths. It's never right to do the wrong thing. The end does not justify the means. Again, this is a matter we see addressed throughout the Bible, I think, that we should do things in God's way. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees 
for thinking that some special devotion to God excuses them from needing to honor their father and mother. He says, no, you can't do that. You can't lay aside God's law for the sake of your, your rules. It doesn't excuse them. God's work is to be done in God's way. What do you think he would say to us? Perhaps um, we fall into the trap sometimes, or we have fallen into the trap, of being too quick to speak the truth to people, very important, but forgetting to do it in love. It's too easy to do that, isn't it, when you get all fired up and passionate. Perhaps we've done the opposite. Perhaps we've been so desperate to love people and to be kind and gentle that we've forgotten to speak the truth to them. I think you can go either way there, can't you? Perhaps there's a risk that if we're involved in successful ministries that are wonderfully blessed by God, that we get a sense of our own importance and forget that commands to be humble and to love people and to be gentle apply to us as well. Tragically, we've seen that sometimes in the church, haven't we? But God's work must be done in God's way. Dads, what if being committed to our paid work so that we can provide for our families and being committed to our ministries in the church meant that we thought we could neglect our families and our responsibility to raise our children in the training and instruction of the Lord. It's all too easy, isn't it, to set aside one thing because we're focused on something else. No, be committed to the calling that God makes on your life, but don't ever think it gives you a good excuse to disobey in other ways. God's work is to be done in God's way. Application number two. Um, the Sabbath is a positive opportunity for God's people. The Sabbath is a positive opportunity for God's people. Um, I can't speak for all of you, um, but I know in my own experience that I've often thought of the Sabbath in terms of what I can't do, what I shouldn't do. Um, one day in seven, God rested, and so I can imitate him and rest one day in seven, so one, I mean, that's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful privilege to be able to down our tools for a day uh, and to rest physically and spiritually and emotionally. And actually, I think in God's wisdom, that's a really important thing, isn't it, for human well-being and flourishing. But this week, as I've prepared um, to, to speak this evening, it's been really thrilling to think of the Sabbath in much more positive terms, not just in terms of what we don't do, but in terms of what we do do. God says to Moses that the Sabbath is a sign that you may know that I am the Lord. An opportunity to know that God is the Lord who makes us holy. Think again of, of all of those voices that you've been listening to during a busy week. Positive and negative. They jostle, don't they? for your attention like you're in the middle of a busy crowd. And it can be hard to hear the voice 
of the Lord that we love with everything else going on? Well, on a Sabbath, we can switch off all of those other voices, can't we? We can switch, or most of them anyway, and we can come to church and we can hear the Lord's voice. We can devote our time to God to know that he is the Lord who makes us holy. We can think again and contemplate his beauty and his majesty and his unbelievable love for us and his plan to make us holy. What an amazing opportunity. What a really positive thing that one day in seven should be for us to devote time to God and devote time to knowing God and remembering his plans for us. We should be, we should be delighted when the Lord's Day comes round, shouldn't we? Because it's a really positive thing for us. Finally then, application number three. Um, the consequence of not doing things God's way is awful. Consequence of not doing things God's way is awful. Look again, will you, at the penalty for not doing things God's way. Verse 15. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. It's frightening to think, isn't it, if you try and put yourselves in the shoes of someone who lived in this time, um, that just something like the act of lighting a fire on the Sabbath day could see you uh, facing the death penalty. Seems like such a small thing, doesn't it? If you, if you were to jump ahead to Exodus 35 when they're talking about the Sabbath again, that, that specific example is given. You must not light a fire on the Sabbath day. Sometimes when I read some of these laws, I wonder how anybody survived for very long at all. It seems so easy to break them all. And thinking about living under this system, I think, should make us a little bit fearful, shouldn't it? We should be grateful that the civil penalties applied to the people at this time are not applied to God's people in the New Testament age. We don't apply the death penalty for working on the Sabbath in the church. But I think this is a reminder of how desperately sinful mankind is and how serious a thing that is before God. When we sin, which we do, and we don't do things God's way, we too deserve to receive God's penalty, God's death penalty. And God will apply the death penalty one day, won't he? There is a day of judgment coming, and God will apply the death penalty to all lawbreakers. God is patient with us now, but we won't escape God's judgment forever. The consequence of not doing things God's way is awful. Whether it was immediately in the case of an Old Testament Israelite, or whether it's something we can only anticipate in future judgment, today... It's important that we remember this, isn't it? Because it's, it's only as we recognize the peril of our situation, the danger that we're in, because we haven't done things God's way, that we see our desperate need 
of someone to rescue us. And when we see how desperately needy we are, we can look to the one who can rescue us, can't we? Jesus himself. I think it's helpful to remember again, isn't it? God's provision over and over again in the desert for the Israelites. And that's a pattern, isn't it? Just as God provided the Israelites with all they needed in the desert, so he also provides us with all that we need. I don't want to face the death penalty. I don't want to face God's judgment and and feel the weight of his wrath. That's an awful thing to anticipate, isn't it? But God has provided, just like God provided for the Israelites, so God has provided for us. He's provided his son Jesus, hasn't he? To take that death penalty for us. We deserve it. Jesus takes it. God sees our unworthiness and our rebellion and our ugliness and our sin and our pathway directly to death. And he provides us once again with exactly what we need. A substitute to stand in our way and sacrifice himself for us so that we can escape that eternal death. The thought that we deserve the death penalty is is terrifying, isn't it? And humbling. But it can also be life-changing. If you haven't done so before, can can I invite you to recognize, to see here in Exodus 31, the awful consequence of not doing things God's way. The heavy penalties that come when we sin against God and we don't do things his way. And then as we recognize that, can I invite you to look to God to provide you with what you need? To provide you with a savior, Jesus, who takes that death penalty for you. Jesus can and he will rescue everyone who has faith in him.